Welcome back to FinCast. I'm Juan Zarati. On this episode, a conversation with Brian Starwalt. Challenges for financial regulation in a digital world. Join one of the great regulators in the world to talk to us about the issues on his mind. This is FinCast episode 35. Join us in our conversation. Why isn't the administration moving harder on sanctions? There's more of a military solution to this than most terrorist financing issues. Organizational structures as a key component for helping to develop confidence. White nights of illicit finance are a myth. They don't really exist. It's a direct attack on the on the money laundering vulnerability. President Putin's reaction to any of these allegations in the past has been prove it. Welcome back to FinCast. This is Juan Zarati. I'm incredibly excited to have Brian Starwalt with us today to, uh, to talk about financial regulation. Many of you in the industry know Brian, but let me introduce him properly to those who may not know Brian quite as well. And we're incredibly lucky to have Brian as a senior managing director now at K2 Integrity. But Brian is one of the, the great professionals in the financial regulatory space with over 35 years of experience. Most recently, he was the chief executive of the Dubai Financial Services Authority, the DFSA, which oversees the Dubai Financial Center. Brian was in Dubai for 14 years, and so no doubt has lots of stories, and we may hear some of them here. But Brian, in that role, over, oversaw and regulated over 500 entities, banks, insurance providers, asset managers, exchanges, innovated in the fintech and regtech sector and oversaw all of the issues dealing with risks to the uh, Dubai and, and, and other financial sectors in the region. Brian is also well-known internationally. He was co-chair of the Basel Consultative Group for nine years, where he was helping the Basel Committee on Banking Supervisions Engagement Globally uh, and where the regulatory community was going. And Brian has enormous experience internationally, including experience that's relevant to the issues of the day he's worked in Ukraine and Poland, Cyprus, Kazakhstan, and he started his career as a lowly bank examiner. <laughs> I say that jokingly, by the way, at the U.S. Treasury Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. Deep respect for the OCC, of course. And so Brian is uh, is one of the, the the best financial regulators of the day, and we're happy to be talking to him today. So Brian, welcome to FinCast. Well, thanks a lot, Juan. Thanks for that great introduction. Of course, of course. Brian, let's we've got a lot to dig into. I know you're doing a lot of work across the spectrum, whether it's on digital assets, cyber resilience, ESG sanctions. So we'll want to talk about all that. But let's just start first so people get a, a sense of who you are and what you're you're working on. You know, what are the things that are interesting you now and, and what are you watching uh, as a, a former regulator and now as, as a part of our firm? Thanks again, Juan. And there's so many things to watch right now that the things that cross your table every morning, the things when you open the Financial Times every morning, that there's so much complexity uh, around the world right now. There's so much uncertainty around the world. So we're certainly living, living in a very challenging time across so many different uh, avenues. And of course, I'm sure like everyone else, you're paying attention to the macroeconomic risks right now that, that we're dealing with how to fight inflation. We're dealing with supply chain issues. Or emerging from the, the COVID pandemic. There's a great deal of fragmentation, geopolitical uncertainty. There's a war, conflict in, in, in various areas. 
Um, but the one, you know, as a, a former regulator and and as uh, a person who sat on the Basel Committee, was such a, a great professional organization that was bringing standardization to, to financial markets and focusing on the banking sector that I worry quite a bit really about the geopolitical issues right now uh, and and somewhat moving backward in time from, from a globalization standpoint. And we really need to stop that trend toward regionalization and move back toward globalization. I mean, I, I realize that there are different opinions about that and different power struggles there, but we really do need to get back to a, a market um, where we're all viewing things in a similar fashion. That's probably number one in my mind as a, as a former regulator. Yeah, uh, as, a, coming, as, a, as a macro there. level issue. Yeah. Now, just, just to push a little bit on that issue, what, what do you say to those who say, look, the realities of supply chain disruptions, choke points, other sort of uh, market factors are really driving us toward a more regional approach. And so we shouldn't be afraid of it and we should uh, embrace it in, in certain ways. And that shouldn't do damage to a, a global financial system mm -hmm. that is effective, efficient, secure. I mean, how do you think about that? No, and, and I respect that. I respect that there's things that each country needs to deal with on its own, that they have customers and they have responsibilities to parliaments or, or congresses around the world. And so there are going to be national agendas. There are going to be regional agendas because there are regional issues. But I think when you, when you think of the global financial sector, I think there needs to be more standardization in, in play, um, that there needs to be certain backstops. Um, uh, we certainly, you know, you don't want to tell every country what to do. You don't want to tell every region what to do. But I think there are certain backstops that you have to have to make, I guess, the term interoperability uh, work around the world, to make global trade work, to make global finance work, you have to have some level of globalization uh, in play. Do you also worry in that regard, as you see more fragmentation or less uh, standardization, do you worry about dark corners of the financial system emerging where illicit finance and things can, can occur more easily? Do you worry about regulatory arbitrage as you think about where digital asset providers or virtual asset service providers set up shop. Uh, are those the kinds of things you worry about? Definitely. And the digital asset world is one area in, in particular that everyone's focused on right now. I think, you know, to be quite honest, there are global regulators um, after the emergence of Bitcoin were waiting for Bitcoin to die, you know, and they probably waited three or four years for Bitcoin to die and it refused. Yeah, uh, to die. I remember uh, those days, those early yeah. days. Well, I would talk about this technology, and it was like I had three horns on my head or something. But yeah, yeah. So, so now they've come to a realization that Bitcoin is not dying. The digital assets are here to stay, um, and we need to get comfortable with that. And regulators need to get comfortable with that development. But there are a lot of things the regulators are going to have to do differently um, now than than they ever did before. So, you know, when you look at really even a, a basic element of just organizational structure of a regulator, that there are a lot of regulators or countries around the world who set up their regulatory system pitting prudential risk versus conduct risk. There are different attitudes, there are different values that uh, each one of those type of regulators put on, on different elements. Um, but you have a lot of regulators like the UK have a Twin Peaks model. And I think now we're moving into a, a realm where you're going to have three peaks rather than the two, um, that you're going to have prudential risk that you worry about. You're going to have conduct of business risk that you worry about, but you're also going to have technology risks 
that you're worried about. And they don't fit neatly into either one of those two buckets. And then the regulator has to decide, okay, if I build this third peak, this technology piece to deal with things like cyber risk, cyber resilience, to deal with the digitalization trends around the world, where do I get those people? And I don't think you can easily train a regulator about IT. You can probably more easily train an IT person about regulation. So you're going to be hiring from a different pool for those teams. But that pool right now is shallow and those people are in high demand. So it is very difficult for a regulator to staff itself with the right people to deal with digitalization. And we at the DFSA, we had a um, uh, kind of a general rule that when we hired an, an expatriate to come into Dubai, that we expected that person to have 10 years experience. There is no such person with 10 years experience in digitalization, right? Very <laughs> few. Yeah. Very You're going to have yeah. to start from scratch uh, on a lot of things and just build on principle. Uh, but then you come to the issue, which is really has always been close to, to my heart, I guess, and not only in my work in international cooperation, but the whole issue of public-private partnership. Mm -hmm. Because things like this digital asset trend that that we're on right now, digitalization, cyber resilience, even the whole ESG framework, is not solved with a set of rules. So if the world is waiting for regulators to develop a set of rules for cyber resilience, they're going to have to wait a long time because it doesn't exist. So that brings public-private partnership uh, into play, right. uh, and regulators need to have the confidence to go into a room with the firms that they're regulating and discuss the issues, not to dictate the issues, but to discuss the issues and develop a path forward. Yeah. Um, and, and that makes some people uncomfortable, but that's life. And that's not the orthodoxy or the paradigm Correct. traditionally, and I think there's a lot of, especially in the crypto domain, a lot of folks that are that are worried that there's a regulation by enforcement and yes. lack of clarity and lack of cooperation. And I know you continue to do work in the private sector now to, mm -hmm. to build those bridges between public and private. And I, and I couldn't agree with you more that that's critical. But let me ask you a couple of fundamental questions around sort of the digital and crypto ecosystem, because you had to deal with it in the creation of that regime at the yes. DFSA, and you're looking at it now through your lens globally. And certainly the U.S. is considering digital asset domain and considering a CBDC and, and all the rest. Do we have the ability to risk manage in this space? That is to say, to your point, there's a pillar of technology risk and, and other crypto and digital risk. We have to think about managing risk in that domain the way we have other risks. Mm. And in many ways, the past dialogue has been quite binary. It's been, you know, this is good or bad. It mm -hmm. should be, you know, turned on or off. It should be allowed or not, right? So, yeah. but now to your point, we're in a domain of some degree of legitimacy and a degree of uh, more than a degree of legitimacy. We're in a zone of legitimacy. And the question is, can we actually risk manage in this domain? And that's a question of capacity yeah. as well as understanding of how to risk manage in a very different context. Yeah. And there you have to, I think, think of the, of the definition of risk. So the wrong way of thinking is to try to put these companies, the new innovative companies, the new fintech companies, into just the rules that you have right now and into the risk parameters that you have right now, because they won't fit easily in there. And you're, you're quite often putting a square peg in a round hole. And no matter how hard you hammer that square peg, the hole's still round, <laughs> you know, so uh, it just doesn't work uh, like that. So you're you're going to have to come up with new instruments, I think, in, in the supervision uh, area. And I would like to 
probably focus more on the supervision area and the oversight area rather than the regulation area, mm -hmm. um, uh, because I think these, these entities defy regulation. I can tell you the, the number of conversations that I had as chief executive of a regulator and the UAE and Dubai are, are extremely progressive and really heavily focused on innovation as the future and then the future of finance for sure. But I had so many fintech firms that would come to me and talk about their, their product. And I said, listen, all I have three questions for you. I want to know, how do you disclose the risk of your product to the person who's buying it? Number two, how do you protect that person's money once they've given it to you or their asset um, that they've given it to you? And three, how do you prevent a financial criminal from abusing your product? And surprisingly, you get blank stares to all three. And I've not discussed any rules. I've not discussed any regulation that you have to put on. I just want to know these things. And, you know, inevitably someone would turn their phone around, but look how cool the app, you know, I'm sure that app is really cool. But at the end of the day, you're giving a financial product to someone and that person needs certain certainties that go along with a, a financial product. And then you, you start to think and you reflect as a regulator, and I did this quite often, of how far do I go as a regulator to prevent someone from harming themselves? A lot of these digital asset firms were operating well outside of regulation. Uh, you can argue whether they should, always should have been or shouldn't have been, um, and people were buying their product. But you go from one end of, if, if they're going to be a formal financial product, So, and I think we are moving from the wild west of digital assets into the Midwest of digital assets. Now things are becoming more normal. As a regulator, do you just warn people that there's risk here and force these firms to disclose that there's potential risk? Mm. Or do you prohibit a person from having a product? And there's no right answer to that. And jurisdictions tend to lean toward warnings and disclosures. But if people are still losing all of their money, and particularly if retail customers are losing all their money, uh, they're going to start complaining mm. to a politician. And the politician is going to start complaining to a regulator. Uh, and then the regulator has to have some very difficult decisions. Do I just, okay, stop it. That This is not appropriate for retail people and, and move on. Um, yeah. And those are, those are theory questions, but very challenging for many regulators. Really interesting. Brian, I want to, I want to touch on a couple of things you, you've raised. You know, your three questions are, are fascinating because it in essence goes down, it boils down to sort of core principles yes. of risk management to your point. Yeah. Like what, what are you actually trying to achieve mm -hmm. uh, and what do you have to control for? And, and uh, you raise that in, in a very astute way. You also said something about that these are entities that defy regulation. And I want to want to touch on that a little bit and ask you this question. Does the current regulatory construct, the, the round hole, if you will, does that fit with these new technologies? That is to say, we, we've created largely regulatory structures that rely on clearinghouses, mm. banks, centrality of, of financial transactionality and the trust that's built through that. Mm. These new technologies are about decentralization, disintermediation, DeFi. The very nature of DeFi is to go peer-to-peer -peer or peer-to-many without a central orchestrator or validator. Mm -hmm. So does the regulatory regime itself that you've used over the year, 35 plus years of your career, does it even 
work for these new technologies in this new system? It can work, but it has to work in principle. And as you alluded, that, that you're dealing with principles here. So, uh, I mean, some of the recent enforcement actions, you know, I mean, it's no secret that Tornado Cash, okay, a very DeFi or oriented product that was being abused by the wrong people and they got fined, you know? And so, you know, there's a lot of market discussion of, well, a regulator shouldn't find a, a DeFi program. Um, well, someone programmed the program, right? Someone wrote this code at the end of the day that uh, until we get to a salient um, uh, artificial intelligence, someone's writing code. And that person is responsible for knowing that it, that, that product is being abused by people. So that gets to the principle of, of yeah. the matter. Um, uh, rather than regulating DeFi, we should be looking at outcomes. Are people losing their money without warning? Are people losing funds through poor custody? Um, and, I, you know, as a regulator, I love words like hosted and permissioned, but the market has to operate on its own and you have to look at outcomes. And for the for the listeners may not be aware, I'm sure everyone's aware, you know, OFAC has designated Tornado Cash and there's controversy around whether or not that was an appropriate measure or the extent of OFAC authorities in terms of, a, of an underlying technology right. for a mixer or tumbler. What I think is really interesting and important there is obviously focus on how North Korea, North Korean related hackers, the Lazarus Group and others were using Tornado Cash to, mm-hmm. to in essence, launder their proceeds. Right. And I think it was a clear market signal by OFAC and the Treasury to say, look, not only is Tornado Cash problematic, but tumblers and mixers are high risk. And you have to consider that as you're thinking about how you manage risk in the crypto ecosystem. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Let me let me turn to this question of CBDCs. Because yes. in some ways, CBDCs, the revenge of of central authorities against crypto, right? It's uh-huh. it's the uh, you know, especially with China, you see them banning Bitcoin, but very you know, invest, investing very heavily in the digital yuan. How do you see central bank digital currencies playing in this environment? Is it a is it a tool that takes advantage of the technology that is able to then temper sort of the hard edges of the crypto ecosystem, or you know, how do you see CBDCs evolving? Yeah, and that's a it's, that's a really interesting topic, and it's 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 timely because I, I mean I think there's up to ninety percent of the central banks in the world are exploring in one phase or another, maybe very early, maybe very late. Some are already offering uh, central bank digital currency products. I personally, the the start of CBDCs, people have asked me, is that a reaction to Bitcoin? And I don't think it is. I think CBDCs probably wouldn't have come to the forefront no matter what happened to Bitcoin. CBDCs are a reaction to Libra, which became Diem, and the the stablecoin environment. That was a wake-up call um, to a lot of regulators. Wait, here's a product that's advertising itself as stable and is going to have a global footprint with potentially a billion customers. Now we're awake to, to this because now you've stepped very close to what is a deposit, a safe uh, way to place your money that allows global movement uh, of that money. And so that was a, a seminal moment, uh, I think, in the Wild West to Midwest journey um, that we're on. So CBDCs came up, uh, I think, more heavily in discussion after the stablecoin discussion. Yeah. And there are some countries that may live with stablecoin, you know, and, and not do a CBDC. And there are some countries that may do a CBDC. Uh, but there's, there's two real 
very large debates that come into play immediately on a CBDC of whether you want to do just wholesale CBDC, which we're probably close to now anyway, mm -hmm. um, in, in many ways, but there has to be a lot more interoperability between central banks uh, around the world to make that to make that really work and work functionally. But but that goes to uh, heavily into reducing all the friction that goes with cross-border trade. And right now, there's enough friction that, that's happening that we should try to eliminate the frictions that we can. Or from the wholesale, do they go to a retail CBDC? That's a big decision there. And so some countries are looking toward that retail CBDC. That is a competitor, I guess, with, with Stablecoin. That uh, why do you want a product that's collateralized by fiat? Why not have a fiat digital currency? Yeah. And then the other decision that you make after going to whether you want wholesale or resale, retail, is do you move to a central bank issued CBDC? Or do you let the commercial banks issue the CBDC? And I think probably more are leaning toward the, the second half of that, of letting the, the central, the commercial banks do the issuance to, to clients because they have the KYC models already in place. Um, they have cyber resilience already in place. You make a big choke point if the central bank itself is going to issue the currency and take on customers. Um, because that's a lot of, of reputation risk you're going to throw out in the in the market there. But without question, the same systems that go with issuing a CBDC go with the fiat. You have to know the customer that's going to use it, and you have to be able to uh, to deal with that customer appropriately. Yeah. And, and I think, by the way, so much you said in that is so chock full of, of great insights. I, I think the DM moment, the Libra moment, was pivotal. Yep. Um, you had the Coinbase, you know, IPO, which was was you know the 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 offering that was important, but DM really woke up the the regulatory spirits. It did to kind of the systemic risk, the the volume and scaling, and the the reality that you know yeah. it wasn't just about Bitcoin that there was something more here at play that was attractive to yes. the payment system, the financial system, and and big commercial actors and technology actors like Facebook. So exactly, uh, I think I think that's absolutely right. Well, let me ask you this, Brian, because you've raised the the point about capacity and what you were looking for when you were in Dubai in terms of of people coming in with with expertise. Are we asking too much of regulators? You know, we, what we ask regulators and, and regulatory regulatory authorities to do is to ensure the integrity and security, sustainability of financial systems. Is it too much to ask regulators to stay ahead of this technology curve and to reshape the the you know the the, the way that they do business and 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 the mix of talent? Speaking as a regulator, it it it's it is too much to ask a regulator to be ahead of the curve. And if you want a regulator to be ahead of the curve, you're going to lose a lot of innovation. You're going to lose a lot of risk management. Because if a regulator's ahead, and, and you have to consider regulators are paid to keep their glass half empty, not half full, mm -hmm. uh, right? They're looking at a, through a different lens of risk reduction and not into innovation. That uh, regulators should not lead, um, but regulators should very closely follow. And again, it goes back to my point earlier that public-private partnership and engagement with the industry is critical to know the upcoming risks, where the industry is going, and that this digital asset industry is, is certainly one, but, but where the industry is going and think along with the industry, what risks does that bring through scenario analysis, through a lot of different tools that a regulator has uh, in place? So 
a regulator should not lead, but the regulator shouldn't be more than one step behind. And that's the challenge that you make. But you cannot even stay one step behind if you stay in your office. Um, you have to get out. Let me switch gears a little bit and ask you about sanctions. Yes, uh, because the you know the weight of the world has been put on sanctions in many ways in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Brought it to the fore quite aggressively uh, in Europe. Uh, we've seen the eighth round of sanctions tied to Russia just coming out of the EU. Certainly, the U.S. is aggressive in use of, of sanctions mm -hmm. against Russia, but this isn't uniform. It, right. it it predominates in the major banking centers, I would argue, and mm -hmm. major jurisdictions, and so rather effective in terms of, of scope, but but not uniform. And you as a regulator have watched how sanctions have evolved over time. What interests you, what worries you about how sanctions are being used and, and the state of sanctions globally? Yeah, so again, that goes back to that, that globalization argument now that you have distinct fragmentation around the world of which countries are going to follow those sanctions. Um, and who's going to issue the sanctions and, and what do you need to do to comply? Um, because the, I think the whole world will tell you, every country will say, we follow UN sanctions. But none of this is UN sanctions, you know, because now you have a member of the Permanent Security, Security Council, Council right. um, uh, who's the one being sanctioned. So there's going to be at least one veto <laughs> anytime that you try to move forward. So that puts it in the play of who's going to do what and then who's going to follow that. Once you step out of the realm of, of EU, then you get into political battles. So you, you, you lose that uniformity. But you just hope that the principle behind those sanctions grasp every country in the world. You know, that, uh, and I lived in Ukraine for two years. Maybe I have some bias there. But, but any time that innocent civilians are being killed, the world needs to do something to take an action. Um, uh, and you may not embrace the sanctions to their letter. But you should embrace the will um, to stop people from being innocently killed. Yeah. Let's switch gears again now to ESG. ESG is sort of the, the topic du jour. There's a little bit of backlash we're seeing politically to you know, adoption of ESG principles. But ESG, I think, is with us and is further burrowing into how financial markets operate and how regulators see yes. uh, the world. Can you speak a little bit to how you see ESG evolving, what you saw in your prior role, and certainly what you're seeing globally? So, I mean, quite often when you get into a discussion of ESG, I'd say 95% of the time people are really talking about the E. That, uh, carbon the, footprint. The carbon and, footprint, the climate change. And your green uh, uh, And your greenness, um, which... Fair enough. It's probably the one area of those three that the world needs to think about in a long-term basis. And the problem with ESG uh, around the world is it defies democratic elections. It's not a four-year problem. It's not a five-year problem. It's a 20-year problem uh, that you're dealing with. And so it's very easy for, for many countries to kick it down the road of, well, the next administration will deal with that. Um, not now. I'm not going to pay for it. Um, someone else will have to pay for it. But the longer you wait to pay for it, the bigger the bill. And so it is something that we need to get moving on. So regulators, I think, need to start the in engagement with the industry of what metric are we going to use you know, around greenness? And the frustrating part is people tend to think of it as an on and off switch. Okay, off. Carbon is off from today forward. You cannot think of that. You have to think of it in a transition period. And we saw, I mean, just two weeks ago, we saw the physical aspect of ignoring climate change with Hurricane Ian 
uh, coming through Florida. That's going to happen more and more, and we're already seeing it happen more and more. Uh, so then you have to think of the transition risk. Let's think of that 20-year life cycle that we're going to have in front of us of how do we move from brownish to greenish. Um, uh, you know, And again, it's not an on-off switch. It's thinking uh, along uh, a period. But if you think along a period, then you're going to have to design some metrics. So if you want to get to you know, a net zero in 20 years, what, what are you now? You know, and so a lot of a lot of countries will tell you that right now that 2050, 2030, whatever it is, that we're going to be net zero. Okay, so are you plus 10 now? Are you plus 20 now? What what are you now? And there's silence, you know, because no one has thought of today. But we have to start thinking um, uh, in terms of of metrics because as as the old adage goes, what gets measured gets done. The problem that we're that the whole world is going through right now is back to your previous question that there's a war, um, and there's a war with a major energy supplier, and so is it time to pause for a moment and then continue the discussion whenever that war ends? I don't think so. I think it's not time to pause. It's maybe maybe it's a time just to think about the transition in in a in a more rational manner than an on and off switch. But we still have to think about um, uh, where we're going there. And that whole issue of, of greenwashing is very real, that everybody said, we're, you know, we're, we're green because we bought Microsoft shares. I don't know them or pick yeah. your company. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but in reality, there has to be a better metric around what is green, what is brown, and what's somewhere in between. Allow me this brief commercial for K2 Integrity. We, we've established and are establishing ESG certifications to try to bring some, some metrics and some, some judgment around whether or not companies and, and funds in particular are actually meeting their own obligation. If they yes. say they're doing it, are they doing it? Very good. So uh, anyways, just forgive the commercial, but, but I think that's absolutely right. Let me ask you uh, another question. It relates to your point to start around globalization. Is, is there a way to think about ESG, now thinking about the social and the governance as well, on a global basis? Because you know, social issues may look different in the Middle East from South Asia to North America to yes. Europe to Africa. So how do we think about the globalization of ESG principles Correct. when you have so many local and regional variations of, of culture and expectations? My answer there would probably be another hour, but but, <laughs> I, but I'll make it uh, quicker that I personally, I don't think you can think of ESG as one block of three letters. Those are those are three great issues that the whole world should be thinking about, but we should be thinking about E, S, and G, not ESG, because the S part in particular is very culturally driven. What is socially responsible in one country may not be in another. But we've lived through a pandemic, you know, for the past three years. So we have been greatly focused on the S, whether we thought about it that way or not. Right. Um, uh, you know, do you give people money to get them through the pandemic or not? I mean, what do you do? Um, the hybrid workplace is a great S initiative that's going on around the world. Yeah. Um, inclusivity. You, inclusivity. Yeah, but, yeah. but you can't make a rule around that, um, you know, that, okay, everybody has to be in the office three days. Well, that's the global standard. There's no global standard on the, on the S. So I think that is something that everyone should have in their mind, but, but you really have to focus on culture. And G has been there, I don't know, from the beginning of time. I mean, you know, I was hired by the OCC in 
1985, I believe governance was a, a big topic then, yeah. still a big topic now. Yeah, genes existed for a while, I would argue that too, yeah. yeah. We haven't cracked that one yet either. Yeah. Uh, you know, we know it should be there. We know what it looks like when you see it, but uh, but it's hard to put a set of rules, again, around, around governance. And as I always talk about governance, that boils down to three words, must, should, and could. This is what you must do, that's a principle. This is what you 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 should do, but we're not going to require it. And this is what you could do to be great. And in, in the end of the day, if we could if we could solve that equation, what must you do? What should you do? And what could you do? That would be fantastic. I love it. I love the way you think about it and the and the way you break it down, Brian. So so easy to understand listening to you. Maybe a final question, and this goes yep. again back to your macro level concern that you started the conversation with. Obviously, globalization is is being challenged. Financial regulations being challenged in, in many ways we've just we've discussed. Are you worried about a bifurcation of the world? That is to say, a world that is U.S. Western led, in some ways seen in the Russia-Ukraine sanctions debate, and then an alternate or or a separate group of countries or or jurisdictions or economies like Russia and China or the BRICS, for example. And you now have Argentina and Iran applying to be a part of the BRICS. Do you worry about a bifurcation of the world as opposed to a regionalization or a more uh, fragmented uh, global environment? I, I don't worry so much about the bifurcation. I do worry more about multipolar world. And we've, you know, we, we've come from an era, I mean, in, in the U.S. where the U.S. was looked at as the leader. And now there are other countries with great economies right now. Um, and with just as much power to to have a say, to be around the table and have an equal vote. So the U.S. struggles with not being the world leader. The rest of the country struggles with, okay, if the U.S. is not the leader, is it you? No, not me. Uh, you know, but I want a voice. Um, and we should be allowing people to have voices. We should be allowing the respect of those voices in a multipolar world. But it's a huge change dynamic right now. I don't think you get to a bipolar, but you will get to multipolar. Um, And that doesn't necessarily mean regional fragmentation. That just means there are more people at the table that deserve respect. Right. I can go on for like another two days talking to you. And I think we'll have to come back with another FinCast. But one final quick question. What excites you most about what you're working on, what you're reading, what you're doing? Uh, what, what, what What are you excited about? You know, the, the whole digital asset space excites me, to tell you the truth. And it, I was probably on the skeptical side. I kicked myself on, on that front. But this, the whole digital asset space, I think, brings so many benefits to the world. Um, we talked about cross-border trade and, and reducing of friction there. Um, but we can't stop thinking about what, what the potential is for global remittance traffic either. To allow a laborer in wherever in the world to remit his or her money back to their family, whether it's Philippines, whether it's India, you pick a country, Bangladesh, to allow those people to remit their money in a faster way, in a cheaper way, in a more secure way, uh, I think is just fantastic for the whole world. And whatever we can do to make to make sure that those systems have integrity, and that's our name, uh, to make sure those systems have integrity that doesn't al- allow massive abuse of the product um, and and let those people function and let them live uh, in a way that they're not being 
you know, fees aren't being extracted from them every, everywhere they turn. That excites me because that's a great thing for, for the world. Brian, this has been a, a tour de force. I love the conversation. We're going to have to have you back. I'm sure the listeners enjoyed this. We're excited to have Brian working with us. And no doubt we're going to uh, feature his insights in our work and our product and hopefully another FinCast coming up. Brian, thank you very much. Thank you, Juan. So that's it for FinCast episode 35. Thank you for listening. We look forward to the next one with you. Thank you for listening to FinCast. We hope you join us for future episodes. Have a great day.